0: Section 33 of Celebrated Crimes Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Celebrated Crimes Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas, translated by G.B. Ives. Section 33. The Chenchi, Part 5. THE POPE WAS SO HORRIFIED ON READING THE PARTICULARS OF THE CRIME CONTAINED IN THE CONFESSIONS THAT HE ORDERED THE CULPRITS TO BE DRAGGED BY WILD HORSES THROUGH THE STREETS OF ROME. BUT SO BARBAROUS A SENTENCE SHOCKED THE PUBLIC MIND, SO MUCH SO THAT MANY PERSONS OF PRINCELY RANK PETITIONED THE HOLY FATHER ON THEIR KNEES, IMPLORING HIM TO RECONSIDER HIS DECREE, OR AT LEAST ALLOW THE ACCUSED TO BE HEARD IN THEIR DEFENSE. TELL ME, REPLIED CLEMENT VIII, did they give their unhappy father time to be heard in his own defense, when they slew him in so merciless and degrading a fashion? At length, overcome by so many entreaties, he respited them for three days. The most eloquent and skilful advocates in Rome immediately busied themselves in preparing pleadings for so emotional a case, and on the day fixed for hearing appeared before His Holiness the first pleader was niccolo degli angeli who spoke with such force and eloquence that the pope alarmed at the effect he was producing among the audience passionately interrupt him are there then to be found he indignantly cried among the roman nobility children capable of killing their parents and among roman lawyers men capable of speaking in their defence this is a thing we should never have believed nor, even for a moment, supposed it possible. All were silent upon this terrible rebuke, except Farinacci, who, nerving himself with a strong sense of duty, replied respectfully, but firmly, Most holy father, we are not here to defend criminals, but to save the innocent, for if we succeeded in proving that any of the accused acted in self-defense, I hope that they will be exonerated in the eyes of your holiness." for just as the law provides for cases in which the father may legally kill the child, so this holds good in the converse. We will therefore continue our pleadings on receiving leave from your Holiness to do so. Clement VIII then showed himself as patient as he had previously been hasty, and heard the argument of Farinacci, who pleaded that Francesco Cenci had lost all the rights of a father, from the day that he violated his daughter. In support of his contention, he wished to put in the memorial sent by Beatrice to His Holiness, petitioning him, as her sister had done, to remove her from the paternal roof and place her in a convent. Unfortunately, this petition had disappeared, and notwithstanding the minutest search among the papal documents, no trace of it could be found. The Pope had all the pleadings collected, and dismissed the advocates, who then retired, except d'Altieri, who knelt before him, saying, Most Holy Father, I humbly ask pardon for appearing before you in this case, but I had no choice in the matter. Being the advocate of the poor, the Pope kindly raised him, saying, Go, we are not surprised at your conduct, but at that of others who protect and defend criminals. As the Pope took a great interest in this case, he sat up all night over it, studying it with Cardinal Di San Marcello, a man of much acumen and great experience in criminal cases. Then, having summed it up, he sent a draft of his opinion to the advocates, who read it with great satisfaction, and entertained hopes that the lives of the convicted persons would be spared. For the evidence all went to prove that, even if the children had taken their father's life, all the provocation came from him and that beatrice in particular had been dragged into the part she had taken in this crime by the tyranny wickedness and brutality of her father under the influence of these considerations the pope mitigated the severity of their prison life and even allowed the prisoners to hope that their lives would not be forfeited amidst the general feeling of relief afforded to the public by these favors another tragical event changed the papal mind and frustrated all his humane intentions this was the atrocious murder of the Marchese di santa croce a man seventy years of age by his son paolo who stabbed him with a dagger in fifteen or twenty places because the father would not promise to make paolo his sole heir the murderer fled and escaped clement VIII was horror-stricken at the increasing frequency of this crime of parricide for the moment however he was unable to take action having to go to monte cavallo to consecrate a titular bishop in the church of santa maria degli angeli but the day following on friday the tenth of september fifteen ninety nine at eight o'clock in the morning he summoned monsignor taverna governor of rome and said to him Monsignor. We place in your hands the Chenchi case, that you may carry out the sentence as speedily as possible. On his return to his palace, after leaving His Holiness, the governor convened a meeting of all the criminal judges in the city, the result of the council being that all the Chenchi were condemned to death. The final sentence was immediately known, and as this unhappy family inspired a constantly increasing interest, Many cardinals spent the whole of the night either on horseback or in their carriages, making interest that, at least so far as the women were concerned, they should be put to death privately and in the prison, and that a free pardon should be granted to Bernardo, a poor lad only fifteen years of age, who, guiltless of any participation in the crime, yet found himself involved in its consequences the one who interested himself most in the case was Cardinal Sforza, who nevertheless failed to elicit a single gleam of hope. So obdurate was his holiness. At length Farinacci, working on the conscience, succeeded, after long and urgent entreaties, and only at the last moment, that the life of Bernardo should be spared. From Friday evening the members of the Brotherhood of the Conforteria had gathered at the two prisons of Savella and Tortinona. The preparations for the closing scene of the tragedy had occupied workmen on the bridge of Sant'Angelo all night, and it was not till five o'clock in the morning that the registrar entered the cell of Lucrezia and Beatrice to read their sentences to them. Both were sleeping, calm in the belief of a reprieve, The registrar woke them and told them that, judged by man, they must now prepare to appear before God. Beatrice was at first thunderstruck. She seemed paralyzed and speechless. Then she rose from bed, and, staggering as if intoxicated, recovered her speech, uttering despairing cries. Lucrezia heard the tidings with more firmness, and proceeded to dress herself to go to the chapel, exhorting Beatrice to resignation. But she, raving, wrung her hands and struck her head against the wall, shrieking, To die, to die, am I to die unprepared, on a scaffold, on a gibbet? My God, my God! This fit led to a terrible paroxysm, after which the exhaustion of her body enabled her mind to recover its balance. And from that moment she became an angel of humility, an example of resignation her first request was for a notary to make her will this was immediately complied with and on his arrival she dictated its provisions with much calmness and precision its last clause desired her interment in the church of san pietro in montorio for which she always had a strong attachment as it commanded a view of her father's palace she bequeathed five hundred crowns to the nuns of the order of the stigmata and ordered that her dowry, amounting to fifteen thousand crowns, should be distributed in marriage portions to fifty poor girls. She selected the foot of the high altar as a place where she wished to be buried, over which hung the beautiful picture of the transfiguration, so often admired by her during her life. Following her example, Lucrezia, in turn, disposed of her property. She desired to be buried in the church of San Giorgio di Velobre, and left thirty-two thousand crowns to charities, with other pious legacies. Having settled their earthly affairs, they joined in prayer, reciting psalms, litanies, and prayers for the dying. At eight o'clock they confessed, heard Mass, and received the sacraments, after which Beatrice, observing to her stepmother that the rich dresses they wore were out of place on a scaffold, ordered, two to be made in nun's fashion, that is to say, gathered at the neck, with long wide sleeves. That for Lucrezia was made for black cotton stuff, Beatrice's of taffetas. In addition, she had a small black turban made to place on her head. These dresses, with cords for girdles, were brought to them. They were placed on a chair, while the women continued to pray. The time appointed being near at hand... They were informed that their last moment was approaching. Then Beatrice, who was still on her knees, rose with a tranquil and almost joyful countenance. "'Mother,' she said, "'the moment of our suffering is impending. I think we had better dress in these clothes, and help one another, at our toilet for the last time.' They then put on the dresses provided, girt themselves with the cords. Beatrice placed her turban on her head, and they awaited the last summons. In the meantime Giacomo and Bernardo, whose sentences had been read to them, awaited also the moment of their death. About ten o'clock the members of the Confraternity of Mercy, a Florentine order, arrived at the prison of Tordinona, and halted on the threshold, with the crucifix awaiting the appearance of the unhappy youths. Here a serious accident nearly happened. As many persons were at the prison windows to see the prisoners come out, Someone accidentally threw down a large flower-pot full of earth, which fell into the street, and narrowly missed one of the confraternity who was amongst the torch-bearers just before the crucifix. It passed so close to the torch as to extinguish the flame in its descent. At this moment the gates opened, and Giacomo appeared first on the threshold. He fell on his knees, adoring the Holy Crucifix with great devotion he was completely covered with a large mourning cloak, under which his bare breast was exposed to be torn by the red-hot pincers of the executioner, which were lying ready in a chafing-dish fixed to the cart. Having ascended the vehicle, in which the executioner placed him, so as more readily to perform this office, Bernardo came out, and was thus addressed on his appearance by the fiscal of Rome. Signor Bernardo Cenci, In the name of our blessed Redeemer, our Holy Father, the Pope, spares your life with the sole condition that you accompany your relatives to the scaffold and to their death, and never forget to pray for those with whom you were condemned to die. At this unexpected intelligence, a loud murmur of joy spread among the crowd, and the members of the confraternity immediately untied the small mask which covered the youth's eyes, for, owing to his tender age, it had been thought proper to conceal the scaffold from his sight then the executioner having disposed of jacobo came down from the car to take bernardo whose pardon being formally communicated to him he took off his handcuffs and placed him alongside his brother covering him up with a magnificent cloak embroidered with gold for the neck and shoulders of the poor lad had already been bared as a preliminary to his decapitation People were surprised to see such a red cloak in the possession of the executioner, but were told that it was the one given by Beatrice to Marzio to pledge him to the murder of her father, which fell to the executioner as a prerequisite after the execution of the assassin. The sight of the great assemblage of people produced such an effect upon the boy that he fainted. End of section 33